This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. I know a guy, his name is Frank. We'll sort all of this out. <laughs> Frank is Job's puppet. We're going to prison. <laughs> Hey, everybody. This is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Phase. We watched so much Arrested Development. Yeah, you're all the way in season four now? Yeah, almost done. Yeah. Two you can, episodes you can kind of You can kind of breeze through season four because there there's a lot that you just don't end up. I, I tune out a lot in mm-hmm. season four. I'm at the point where I stopped last time. I actually never yeah. finished season four. Yeah. So I'm about to go to the Buster episode. Which I'm really looking forward to. Buster's episodes are good. Job's episodes are by far the standout episodes of the fourth season. You think so? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, you know, like I agree with you being hit or miss, but I found the Tobias episode and the Lucille episode to be just solid gold. Tobias's, Tobias's whole thing is, is great. Um, yeah, I get Tobias's. I don't remember Lucille's too much. Oh, I guess that was the one she's in prison. <laughs> yeah, and it's the it's the um, what is it? Real Asian prison housewives at the Orange County Correctional Facility. Yeah, correctional system. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I just don't. I don't know. For some reason, most of that season just hasn't ever stuck with me. Little bits and pieces, and that's one of the reasons that like more of Job's bits stuck with me, especially after the first viewing. More of Job's bits stuck with me than anybody else's bits. His whole thing with same when he when he he's talking to Tony Wonder and him and Tony Wonder are talking about when they started using the word same. It's like so weird. But that's was, when they're both trying to convince each other that they're gay, right? Right. <laughs> to mess with the other person. Yeah. That's good. His his thing with the forget me nows gets so good when he gets stuck in a in a loop where where He's taking the forget me now too late to forget what he wanted to forget, but it's at the right time to forget that he ever took the forget me now. So then he keeps, he gets stuck in a loop and he keeps buying more. Like he goes, like they do this bit and he goes to the store to buy roofies, like in Mexico, in Mexico. And he just goes there like multiple times in one day. (laughs) Just how many, how many times he's roofing himself? Ridiculous. Uh, George Michael's thing, kind of meh on that. Yeah, the later episodes, it it starts to feel more like normal Arrested Development. Yeah, I wonder if it's because of the storytelling. Like they're all telling the same story from different viewpoints. Yeah. So instead of just like pushing it through like a normal season. Part of it was that it was an experiment, right? Like they wanted to try a show that was really designed for the binge watching experience and designed for like the point of the show, at least that season from what I've read, is that you're supposed to be able to watch individual episodes in any order, right? You're not necessarily supposed to watch them in chronological order that they're laid out in in the season. You're supposed to be able to jump in and watch individual episodes and for the most part, you'll still get the, the punchline when the joke is revealed. You'll just get it from a different point of view. You know what I mean? There's so many. And the Arrested Development's always had those where they like, you know, like there's a bit in, I guess, season two 
where George Sr. is driving around um, in a Ford Escape, which the salesman, the Ford salesman says, is their attempt to get away from the the, the, the Bronco getaway car image. We call this one the Escape. And, uh, I love that name. <laughs> But he's driving around, and he almost hits Lucille. Lucille's driving around too, and so she yells something at him, and he yells some, or he yells something at her as she's passing, and she yells something back. And but you only see it from Lucille's point of view, and then it cuts later. It cuts and it shows the other side of that. So it shows that it was George Senior that yelled the first thing. And, um, <laughs> so they've always done that, but this time they stretch those same reveals out across multiple episodes, and so it ends up kind of changing the feel. But supposedly that was the intention. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Buster's been up to because you haven't seen him at all through like 11 episodes. Just a little bit. And I don't think they've shown his hand at all. His hand? Yeah. Well, his lack of a hand. Oh. Right? Yeah. Which Which I noticed my second time viewing the fourth season. I was like, they never show his hand until his episode or his lack of a hand. You know what I mean? There's no hook gags there's no none of that stuff anyway we should probably not talk about arrest development for an hour <laughs> i was kind of hoping that we were just going to keep doing this and it was going to be the episode but we'd never <laughs> mention it and just put this out and yeah. it's just about arrested development yeah and just see what happens <laughs> and never bring it up again just right. go back to ios right. next week right yeah <laughs> people will question their own sanity like did that did i dream that right uh, all right. So let's see. Real topics. A week out from WWDC, what are you? What are your takeaways? Well, there's a lot of operator overloading going on. Now, when you say when you're talking about operator overloading, are you talking about multiple? You're talking because I've seen that used in two different places. Are you talking about multiple functions with the same basic signature, except for that one takes one type and another one takes another type, and they do two different things? Or are you talking about specifically? Adding like the tilde equals yes stuff with regex, the latter. And yeah. the example that I saw that that made me tweet what I tweeted was that it was like view plus view, but actually equates to view add sub view mm. view. No, no, I don't want. The, they are the new categories. Yeah. I don't want to go into every project and be like, well, how does plus work over here? Right. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot, and I've I think there's some interesting concepts. Like I do think that the regular expression using a using a tilde equals to do like regex matches for Swift, like that's interesting. But I am afraid of random, especially since there's no public private stuff. Right. This is this is kind of gets back to that being an issue. But because um, if you want to define your own infix operators for your own use inside your own library that's fine but because of the way swift works right now and there's no public private you there's no way to keep those from leaking out into my project if i use your library you know what i mean so like a third-party library defines tilde equals or view plus view if you want to use like tilde equal inside your libraries and implement implementation detail, that's fine. But I'd rather it not end up leaking out into my application unless it's intended to be leaked out into my application. Do you know what I mean? I think so. Are you saying that overloaded operators aren't, well, how do I phrase this? Are you saying that namespaces don't affect 
operator overloads. I don't think they, I think if it's a global function and you import that framework, it'll pull that global function into your, your application. But if you have multiple modules that have overloaded one operator, who wins? I don't know. I don't know enough about how the namespacing stuff works, to be honest, because I know that extensions aren't namespaced either. Um, so if you do an extension on any object, that extension gets added in the object's original namespace. So if you, you there's still the issue of you add an extension on UIView and I add an extension on UIView, we could still get name collisions. That seems crazy to me. Mm-hmm. But how else do you do that? Do you namespace the categories or the extensions themselves? Do you namespace the functions on the, na- on the extensions? And then how do you call them? I guess like in other languages, you declare which namespace you're using. Not, Can you do using namespace? Not, not when you're doing something like extensions. The closest thing that I can think of is like in Ruby, you can do you can monkey patch in Ruby where you literally just like open the class back up and add a new method to it. But when you do that, it acts the same as our extensions do, where you're adding it to the namespace of the original object. So if I have an object foo that's in my module, when I open it up, I have to say module, my module, class, foo, and then define a method. Like, how do you namespace, how would you namespace just a function on an object that's in a different namespace? Yeah, I don't know. Is it one namespace per module? Yeah, as far as I know. Modules aren't namespaces. Okay. So that helps with stuff like person. You know, if there's multiple person classes, you can refer to those by namespace. But it doesn't help if I'm adding a category to something in an existing namespace. And then global functions, I'm not sure how those work. You know, I'm not sure if those are namespaced. I'm not entirely sure how you call it if they were. Hmm. Module dot function? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know enough about the language at this point to right. say if that's wrong or right. 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 Is that intended? You mean the extensions thing or the So I don't know I don't know how the global functions thing works. It's totally possible that when you import stuff, if there is global functions are namespaced, so if there is a collision, you would have to refer to it explicitly by the namespace, right? The way normal objects I think work. When you do like an infix, do you get to specify the types on either side of that mm-hmm. operator? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that kind of cuts that down a little bit. Like you could say that if you're doing plus on two views, it does this. Right, but what if I, yeah, I don't know. I just see that as like, as, like you said, like categories. You know what I mean? I only want that stuff leaking out as little as possible. Especially since there are going to be, like you, like you were saying, with like having to figure out what plus means in a specific context. Like everyone's going to define things differently. Yep. I don't want to have to think about five different definitions of tilde equals. Exactly. Yeah. That's the core of my complaint. Plus, I think that a lot of, if they're good, I think they should be added to the core language. Like, I think that tilde equals should be added to the core language. But I also think that we shouldn't have to use NS regular expression in the core language. I think that there should be a a native regex class in Swift that has a, a literal you know what I mean? Like like exists in other languages. Because one of my favorite things about Swift so far is being able to not use foundation. Yeah. Like 
that to me is huge. I think that that to me makes it more of a quote unquote like real language than Objective C. I've I said this a bunch over the past two weeks, but Objective C as a language is tiny, right? It's a very very small language itself. It's a tiny subset of a couple of nice syntax things on top of C, and it's and then it's the Objective C runtime, but. What can you actually do in Objective-C without using foundation? You don't have objects. All you have is like the primitive values, you know? You have like C, like then you're just doing stuff in C, basically. Objective-C doesn't provide you with a, like a root object? No, it's NS object. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, you call the language Objective-C in order to add an object-oriented layer on top of C but then don't provide like an object at all. And it, you know, takes a fair amount of work to right. roll your own root object. Right. I mean, as far as I know, I don't I don't think that there's any root object. NS object doesn't have a superclass. Right. You know? NS object is a root class. So but so I love I love the fact that you can actually do things inside Swift. You can do a lot inside Swift without touching foundation because there's a lot built in. Arrays are built into the language. Strings are built into the language. Objects are built. Objects and structs and enums, those are language features. Those aren't part of a, of a framework at all. But then immediately you get into regular expressions, and regu- regular expressions, there is no regular expression in Swift. There's only regular NS regular expression in foundation. And I hate that API anyway. I just really do. Uh, it, it makes me not use regex because, which is probably not horrible because regex is not the best solution most of the time. But it'd be nice to have, you know. Yeah, I agree with you. It'll be interesting to see what kind of becomes normal Swift. You know, this time next year, what is how does Swift look different from Swift today? I'm just excited for like this week right theoretically a new beta drops sometime over the next few days right when do they normally do beta releases it it, they usually start out like every two weeks it seems and then they slow down yeah so could be any time over the next few days could have dropped it could happen today or tomorrow it could drop before this episode comes out right recording them we're recording on monday this is coming out on wednesday it could my money's on tuesday yeah, that's that's kind of where mine is too. My my money's on tomorrow. Um, that we have a new beta, a new seed of OS ten ten, which I'm just calling ten ten because I can't remember Yosemite at all. Um, and then iOS eight and Swift along with it. You know, so I'm really excited to see what does Swift look like tomorrow. You know, because they've said we're willing to break source compatibility. I think this first beta is going to show us how serious they are about like iterating on the language and breaking shit you know yep. when the new beta comes out they go we just updated the the swift epub hopefully they give us a diff of what's changed in the language at, to some extent and if they say like we removed all these things and added all these things you know i think it'll be really interesting to see how far they're willing to go with this and how serious they are about um iterating on this over the next few months yeah i'm interested to know when they froze swift for the WWDC release, you know, it could have been early May, like I, four, I heard, week, four weeks out. I heard two weeks. Oh, 
I heard it okay. was. I heard. I heard the syntax was different. Two weeks before WWDC, two weeks before the announcement, Swift was essentially a different language, and that's one of the reasons you have inconsistencies in different documentation, right? There's in the generated header things say one thing, and then in the when you actually like run it in a playground or in the REPL, it says a different thing, you know, or the book has differences. There's there are subtle differences in like the book versus some of the implementations. The one that we found out, you know, that we saw was there's a there was a difference in the behavior of arrays, right? Constant arrays. So let my array equal whatever. There's a difference in the constant the behavior of constant arrays between compiled code, the REPL, playgrounds, and the documentation. I was able to, in compiled code, I was able to create a constant array and then append items to it, right? Because the array itself isn't immutable. The Basically, the pointer to the array, the reference to the array is immutable. So you can't say, my array is now another array. You can't reassign that constant. But the value of that constant, the, the length of the array and the contents of the array could change. But that's at odds with what the documentation says and what I believe the – so that worked in the REPL and in compiled code, but it was different in, documenta- in the documentation and in playgrounds. I think if you did a constant array and then tried appending to it, you got a compiler error. I think the book says that as well right. at the moment. It says you can change individual objects, but once you set the, the length of the array, you can't append new items onto it, right? Right, yeah. I, I, yeah, the, the book says that constant arrays at the moment, you can change the items within the array as long as the length doesn't change. Right. And so I was able to, I, I was able to do that very, very simply. You know what I mean? I was able to prove that wrong in compiled code. You know? We saw something similar with slices, if you recall. You could have a slice pointing into an array. It, it would track changes into the original array in, t- until you either popped an item out of the array or pushed an item in right. and change the length and then the, the slice became detached from that array. And so then the items in the slice were still what they were in the array before it got detached, right? Like the, the slice still had value but it, no, it was no longer referencing an, a, an existing array. Yes. That may have to do with immutability, I wonder, in terms of like some internal implementation stuff of how arrays actually do appending. I wonder if or when, or when you actually append an array. Theoretically, what it could be doing internally is that it takes the new array, the old array, creates a new array with the contents of the old array and this new item, and then returns that, right? Or that would be a reason why the... the um, appending an item or popping an item would break the reference. But it's weird that there are these kind of subtle mutability, immutability reference rules inside Swift that aren't totally documented and aren't 100% clear. Mm-hmm. You know? What you just said makes me wonder if arrays are implemented similarly to NSArray. And that behind the scenes, the implementation is actually changing based on the length to optimize access into that array. I bet it's close. Um, if it's not the exact same implement- implementation, because they've, 
I think NS arrays superior to most other arrays be for that reason, right? The fact that it can dynamically change out its internal representation at the bottom, bottom, bottom level. You know what I mean? It can change out its representation based on what makes the most sense for access, like, you know, performance and stuff like that. It makes sense for them to just take that and apply it to this new thing. But then that, like I said, that also, that makes mutability weird. Especially this, like, the, I think I think this the whole slice array thing caught me off guard. You know, I create a, a slice by just taking a subrange of an array, right? Like passing a range into the subscript, and then I get a slice back. But the fact that it was still pointing at the original array caught me off guard. You know, it, you thought it was going to be a copy. Yeah, I totally did. I th- I thought I thought it was going to copy those, you know, just be a copy of the content, those contents. And the fact that you could update that stuff live kind of it weirds me out. So those little those little inconsistencies, those little kind of weird things that that are fairly obvious once you start playing with it a little bit, you know. Given that it's a new language and given that we have this weird relationship all of a sudden with Apple where we are able to help shape the language that our jobs are going to be based on basically like that's 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 awesome in general you know what i mean it's like really great that like the ruby folks can contribute to ruby and can do that you know for themselves but i never thought this would happen for us i never thought that we get this kind of access to the language at this level and this isn't even a great this isn't even a great amount of access you know there's still crap documentation we still don't have, like, we can't view source at all. But even just being able to file radars, like, being encouraged to file radars against the language yep. is, is wild. I really just want the docs of, like, everything in the standard library yeah. of Swift. There's so many things right now that are just being passed around by word of mouth. <laughs> right, like that process struct? Yeah. <laughs> Wacky. Yeah, I, I I do think that the reason that they haven't released uh, so do do you put much stock in this Apple is going to open source Swift after its release rumor? I'm about sixty percent. Yes, they will. Not overly confident, hmm. but it does seem like they're trending in that sort of direction. And I don't think they have anything to lose by open sourcing it. I don't know. Can you think of any downside for Apple? Remember that Apple does everything for Apple, so I think I think it can only benefit them. Yeah, I can't think of a downside. I'm probably more on the forty percent yes side. I'm a, I'm the flip side of you, right? Like I see that it could be possible, but like we said in the last show, right, is that this is a very new Apple that we saw two weeks ago, and maybe my expectations are being set by my old view of Apple which is secrecy, 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 like lock everything down as much as possible. And the way they've dealt with Objective-C, which is completely closed, with the exception of the runtime, I guess, but completely closed. And even the runtime is like hard to find and not great in that regard. But then at the same time, like they open source WebKit, you know? Yeah. And that worked out really well for them. You know, I actually don't really understand why they ever tried to keep Objective-C cl- so close to the vest. But they don't care about C. I mean, Core Foundation is open source. Right. Why Objective-C? And I, I get, okay, Foundation, you don't want to open source that? That's fine. I get that. Right. The frameworks themselves, like, 
I never expect the frameworks to be open sourced. But again, it, it gets back to how much was the language actually doing in Objective-C that wasn't in the runtime. You know what I mean? It was just some syntax over these, like, the Objective-C runtime, like, message send and all that crap. And that has been open source, you know what I mean? And that's the only reason that stuff like RubyMotion or Xamarin are able to do what they do, you know? And ironically enough, Swift, right? All three of those are now built on kind of the same. That was that was one of my main thoughts when, when I saw Swift and I, I, under, I kind of understood the implementation that they were writing. It's a new language that targets the Objective-C runtime, which was like, wow, that's really weird that all of a sudden the official language is basically doing the exact same thing that RubyMotion does to a large extent, you know? It's using a high-level language as a language to compile down to this machine code that runs on, you know? It's almost like it's almost like the Objective-C runtime is the JVM at this point. I think that's temporary. Really? I don't I don't think it'll be that way in 5 years. I think that's a that's a compatibility thing. Hmm. That's about keeping it, you know, working with Objective-C for the time being during this transition period. I'm willing to wager that in five years, the Objective-C runtime won't factor into any of this at all anymore. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, I think if they want Swift to be seen as a modern language, it should be open source and visible to everyone. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to get the same flack that they rightfully always got about you know being Apple about it. Yeah. I think that's my main excitement about Swift. Like I, like I was saying before about how much you can do without... Apple's frameworks, right? One of the reasons that it's a pain in the ass to do anything with Objective-C outside of building OS X or iOS apps is that you need foundation for everything. You need AppKit or UIKit for everything. But with Swift, it feels like you can do so much more without it. And so it excites me to think about like this language that's been that's open source that is a full-fledged language. Like it's yes, it has to be compiled. And so, like, it, you know, you, ha- you can't, like, run it. It's not completely portable. Like, you know, you don't just have to ship a, an interpreter for it. You have to compile it for architectures and do all that stuff. But, like, it, it could be used for other things. It could be, like, we started writing, we started looking at what it would take to write Liftoff. Move it away from Ruby. That was a, that was a thought that I had, like, during the keynote. It was like, man, I wonder if I could write Liftoff in Swift. I never tried to do that with Objective-C, ever. I never thought, oh, yeah, it'll be fun to write Liftoff in Objective-C. But that was an immediate thought that I had with Swift. I just think it has possibilities for many more applications than just apps. I agree. I keep toying with the idea of being able to use it for web apps, web development. The, the, The compiled bit throws a wrench in there. But maybe you know the answer to this. With the REPL and the Playground, how do those work? It's surely not compiling your code every time you change a character. It, it is. It's it's doing. It's it's not interpreted. It's still doing like just in time compilation. So okay. it's doing code gen basically. It, you know, reads the file and generates line by line as it's going. So the playgrounds I think are hooking into the same kind of compiler stuff that Xcode uses already for constantly compiling your code in order to give you real-time warnings and real-time errors got it like once you have that built into the ide that kind of real-time thing then you could do everything that playgrounds are doing and the repl the repl just compiles and evaluate and executes single lines of code as you type them in so it is doing it is doing compiling for that stuff 
at least my understanding is that is that that's how it's working. I asked in the there's a Swift Lang channel on Freenode IRC, and I asked in there, and that's kind of the response I got from a bunch of people. It's like code gen, just in time compilation, that kind of stuff. Which I don't know much about compilers and stuff like that. So, um, is there anything out there that runs? On a server to serve web apps that is compiled beforehand Java. and then deployed onto a server. I mean, Java Java applications are compiled, right? Mm-hmm. I think Clojure is compiled. Haskell, you can run Haskell. Like, there's a bunch of Haskell stuff. All that's compiled. Um, it's possible to run compiled stuff. It's just harder. Um, and I, I don't know much about web architecture or web server stuff either. So, but I think I think it's harder just because that kind of stuff is generally harder with compiled code. So I think the problem with Swift in terms of compilation on the server is how do you deploy it to the server? Do you compile it locally and then push an executable up? Or do you uh, push code up, like Heroku, for example? Do you just push code up and have Heroku build it? And in that case, you need some kind of a instruction set for the compiler to say, here are the files, here's how to compile them. Which is where stuff like Cabal on in Haskell, Cabal is like a package management tool in Haskell. And that's where it comes in, right? You, it, you can create a Cabal file and you can say, here are my dependencies, here are the files. And then uh, using that, now other things know easily how to compile Haskell files. Right now, the problem right now is that for Swift, that's just an Xcode project file, you know. So you need to build up another compiler instruction configuration thing, which would be awesome. I'd be all about that, you know what I mean? Because then you could, that would mean you could like legitimately write Swift applications in Vim, for example. Then just compile with some like LLVM. Sure, yeah. Inline tool. Yeah. I mean, that must... That must live somewhere right now. It's just it's only surface to us through Xcode at the right, moment. Right, that's all. I mean, that's all Xcode builds doing. Xcode build is just looking at the Xcode project file, reading it, finding the compilation instructions from that, and then passing all that stuff into LLVM, and then generating an executable from it. You know, that's all it's doing. So you could do that from outside of Xcode. It's just kind of a pain in the neck. And unless there's like there was no reason to do that with Objective C, because again, like what what else are you going to do? You know, they even moved web objects away from Objective C, and that was like supposed to be the other. You know, they moved that to freaking Java just because it made more sense. So there's no real reason to create this kind of thing for Objective C. But I've seen way more interest in Swift from non-iOS, from just like language people. You know what I mean? People here in the company and people outside the company that are just really into languages. They just want to learn languages, you know? Seen much more interest from them in Swift. And so I think potentially, like, there's a market for that kind of a thing. Still thinking about how we could compile Swift code on the server. Is it possible to supply build settings in an XE config? Like, can you put every build setting in there but but xc configs need to be hooked up through xcode sure like the xc prefix and all that right. but it is still possible to just throw anything in an xc config if you hook it up xcode will know about it you know what i mean but then why not just set it in the project and use xcode build right but my point was that you can have this text file 
basically, mm-hmm. that defines all these settings that somehow eventually get fed into LLVM mm-hmm. or Clang. Mm-hmm. It's just all going through Xcode at the moment, but that's not necessarily right. a requirement. Right. I'm saying all the pieces are there. They're just not put together in a way that we can use them yet. Right. Look, I just want Rails to go away, okay? That's... <laughs> There's a fair number of Rails people that want Rails to go away, too, so you're not alone. I, By the, the way, we should have some words with Tom. This is a bad time to learn Ruby, Tom. <laughs> No, I think that there's a lot of people that want one language, you know, client side, server side that isn't JavaScript. That's what they want, right? A good language that they can use to write client side apps and server side apps, kind of unify code base, code bases, that kind of thing. And I think there's a lot of a lot of languages that could be that. And I think Swift potentially could be that. But I do think that in order for it to be that, it has to be open source. It has to be viewed along the same lines as Ruby and Haskell and all these other languages that, that are open. Like if I want to see how, how a certain function is implemented in, or a method is implemented in Ruby, I just click through to the source. Can't do that in Objective-C. I would love to be able to do that in Swift because it's a hugely, hugely, hugely powerful thing. Instead of just docs and I'm going to read through docs and be like, this says that if I do this, then this is true. But if I do this other thing, then this is true. Docs are great, and documentation helps kind of get over that initial hurdle. But if I want a deeper understanding of exactly why this works the way it does, being able to click into the source of a function definition would be enormous. Yeah, it would be like if an advanced concept was explained in like some paper in Spanish, and then there was a translation to English, and I have to read it in English to understand. Right. Right. It'd be better if I could just speak Spanish. <laughs> right. That's a rough yeah. metaphor. That's but- pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you're having to do another level of translation to try to explain yourself when the code is succinct and the canonical source of what does this thing really do, not interpreted through the person who wrote the words in English about what it does. Right. And there's always going to be concepts in programming that are harder to vocalize than they are to just type out. You know what I mean? That if you're comfortable with the language, if you just read the source, you just get it just based on what the source says. But if you try to vocalize those same things, then it's like, uh, uh, you know, you got to think through how to say things and you got to put words to concepts that maybe you don't actually have words for, which is weird. Right. But anyway, excited. Yeah. Can't wait to start actually using it more than anything. You know? Yeah. I've still just been doing little scripts and playing around here and there. Nothing serious yet. I've just been trying to read the book. I hate tech books, man. I really do. They're so boring. So freaking boring. I don't understand the people that finished this book on Tuesday. I'm on like page 50. I out of like 600. I'm just so bad at reading these things. I imagine that the people, okay, there are probably some people that could read it that fast and comprehend it, but I'm guessing most people are going to go back through it again. Yeah. Maybe I'm an outlier and I just can't read a book that fast and understand it. I mean, I just got through the generics chapter last night, and there's still about 40% of the book to go. Hmm. Yeah, see, I'm not even there. But I've also, I, I just got back from San Francisco, you know, so I'm just getting back into my normal schedule, reading on the bus and stuff. So we'll see how fast I get through it now. Well, I, I did tear through the um, interoperability with Objective-C. That's a short one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was it good? It was okay. Yeah. In some ways, it was more dense than the Swift book because it all of a sudden just threw all this stuff at you on top of Swift, Mm -hmm. like all these special keywords you have to use, Mm -hmm. you know, to make Swift files available in Mm Objective-C and vice versa. 
rules around that kind of stuff. Yeah. I might not have been ready for that. <laughs> go back and read that again. Wrap it up. Yeah. All right. Uh, show notes for this episode are going to be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash buildphase slash 42. And we'd like to hear your thoughts on Swift. So email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on app.net or Twitter at buildphase. Also, we'd appreciate reviews and ratings on iTunes. All right. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Later, man. Later, man.